You're listening to the Exceptional Girls Podcast. I'm Julie Withrow, your host and mom to Maddie, my neurodiverse, twice exceptional teenage daughter. Figuring out Maddie's unique wiring has been a game changer for her and for our relationship, but it took almost 15 years and that's just too long. I'm on a mission to shorten the learning curve for other families by increasing awareness of neurodiversity in females who are all too often misdiagnosed, misunderstood, or missed entirely. Join me for expert interviews, candid conversations, and hopefully even an aha moment or two as we learn how to help our exceptional girls feel seen, supported, and celebrated. Before I introduce this episode, I have a confession to make. It's been a long time since I've published a new episode of the Exceptional Girls podcast. And in truth, the episode you're about to listen to isn't new at all. I recorded the interview that you're about to listen to with Dr. Linda Silverman back in 2021. And here we are, almost at the end of 2023. I still think the episode has a ton of value. The things that Dr. Silverman and I discuss are timeless, and I believe there's a lot of really great information in there for parents who are navigating, you know, the the trials and the questions and the doubts and all the feelings that you have uh, as someone who particularly is parenting a twice exceptional child. So the reasons why I waited so long to release this episode are a little complex. For starters, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to do a podcast. Uh, If you've ever tried it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm very passionate about this topic, but the work of producing a podcast is way more than I ever thought it would be. So honestly, I just needed to take a little breather and figure out what I wanted to do with the podcast and how I was going to make producing it a little bit easier for me while still keeping it valuable for you. And while I was taking that break, something else happened too. The person who inspired me to create this podcast was my daughter, Maddie. But during the time that I was taking that break, they came to me and told me that they didn't really feel like they were a girl. And they really questioned their identity as a female and as my daughter, and really wanted to be identifying as a non-binary person, not a male or a female, but just a person. And that obviously, or not surprisingly, caused me to really question how I was going to move forward with the podcast. And so I'm still figuring out what that looks like. But what I do know for sure is that I still feel very strongly about the importance of understanding how to identify and support neurodivergence in females. And I also know that I love my child no matter what, whether they identify as an exceptional girl or just an exceptional person, I love them all the same. And I suspect there'll be another episode soon where I talk about that in more detail. But until then, I really hope you'll listen to the interview that follows with Dr. Linda Silverman. Dr. Silverman is a licensed clinical and counseling psychologist with a PhD in both educational psychology and special education. 
She founded and directs the Institute for the Study of Advanced Development, as well as its subsidiary, the Gifted Development Center. In her work at the Gifted Development Center, Dr. Silverman has studied more than 6,500 children, creating the largest bank of data on gifted kids. She's also written over 300 articles, chapters, and books. I invite you to listen to the conversation I had with Dr. Silverman, where she explains what it means to be gifted and shares the ways that giftedness look different in girls than in boys. You'll get to hear Linda explain the differences between giftedness and twice exceptionality, as well as gain invaluable insights into the way differences like ADHD and autism present in girls. It's an understatement to say that I was excited and more than a little nervous to get to talk to Dr. Silverman or Linda, as she insisted I call her, but I can't let my own insecurity stand in the way of sharing her expertise and insights. So without further ado, let's listen to the interview. Hi, Julie. Thank you for inviting me. I've actually been following your work for a really long time, and I am really excited to introduce you to my audience who may not be familiar with you yet. Well, thank you. So let's jump right in. So you have had a really long career in educational psychology. And I know for me, this, this is a field I wasn't that familiar with, so it's kind of new you know, for me personally, and maybe for other people as well. The field is, has obviously come a long way in the, in the years that you've been in it, and I know you've seen a lot of changes. And I've heard you specifically talk about how giftedness you know, used to be a, psycho- a psychological issue, right? That's the lens that we looked at it through. But often today, it's looked at more through the educational lens. And I know that that has had an impact on, on our understanding of giftedness. And I know you have some feelings about that. So can you share a little bit more about that, about that transition and how that has impacted the way we understand what giftedness is? My belief is, as a psychologist, that giftedness is an inner difference, not a school-based difference. Just like coming from special ed, if we were talking about the other end of the spectrum, it's a 24-7 deal for parents. It's not, oh, I'll send my kid to school and my child will get a special um, Tuesday afternoon being able to deal with children who are like him or her. And then the rest of the time, everything is just fine. It wasn't in special ed, obviously, It's a whole different story. The further you go down the continuum, the greater the need for intensive intervention. And uh, George Betts used to talk about being gifted on Tuesdays. Doesn't exactly cut it if you're looking through a special ed lens. But it turns out that the person who started our field, who was an ardent feminist, Lita Hollingworth, also wrote the textbook on mental retardation, which was the terminology used at that time. It was used for decades. And so she, like me, look at both ends of the spectrum and say, wait a minute, there's very little similarity with how we're dealing with kids on both ends of the spectrum. We're not recognizing that it's a lifespan situation. We're not realizing that you're gifted before you ever get into school, that you're gifted when you're 90. When you're in a nursing home, 
like Anna Marie Roper was, where it was custodial and no one, she's wondering where are the political activism groups, you know, <laughs> there's still the need for the mental stimulation yeah. and for the values. And from a psychological perspective, if we look at the psychology of gifted rather than gifted education, then we're looking at the whole child and the adult that that child is going to become. And we're not looking at that child in terms of achievement. We're looking at intensity, sensitivity, greater awareness, early uh, asking of questions about where did I come from? What's going to happen to me when I die? These aren't questions that get answered in school. It's not a school-based phenomenon. But then when educators got into the mix, it got to be all about achievement. Then the big shift that happened during my career is that school psychologists who used to be in charge of determining who was gifted got pushed out of the picture altogether. Yep. And uh, now, you know, it, it's a field that's bereft of a foundation, a theoretical foundation. It's just goes along with whatever the political whim is of the era that it happens to be in. Uh, there's this great cartoon. We, we had a gifted program, but she left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sadly, that sadly hits a little close to <laughs> when, when we're talking about special education, can you imagine a cartoon like that being uh, appropriate. We had a special education program, but she left. Uh, no, because we have, we have a federal mandate to protect kids who are two standard deviations below the norm. There needs to be the same federal mandate to protect kids who are two standard deviations above the norm. And that is a psychological as well as a special ed perspective. I'm really glad you're saying that because I, I mean, I've long seen this. Nobody questions, um, you know, the no child left behind approach, right? Particularly when it comes to kids who need, you know, additional uh, help. But when it's when it's the kids on the other side of the bell curve, it's like, oh, well, those kids can those kids can take care of themselves, right? They, they, you know, they don't they don't need that much from us. And that has long frustrated me that gifted education does isn't seen as its own form of special education, right? It is special education. Mm -hmm. It's education for children with documented special needs. Yeah, exactly. Who learn differently, who feel differently, who experience differently, who have different awareness. And that is a psychological perspective. And this child-centeredness comes down from Lita Hollingworth, who started the field of gifted education, but herself was a psychologist. Not everybody... Um may have a common understanding of what of what giftedness means, right? Because we have learned certain things maybe through school, through having kids in GT programs and things like that 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 you know may have skewed what what we really understand it to be. But you know, from your experience and your insights, how would you explain what giftedness is? When I first started the field, my definition was developmental advancement. And because I come from a special ed backward, background, it seemed to me to mirror developmental delay. These were kids who went through the developmental milestones faster. 
They learn to talk earlier. Some of them learn to read earlier. And they were um, asking more profound questions at an earlier age. But then a group of us, women, got together to talk about what was happening in the productivity view of giftedness. It was all about products and performance. And there were gifted program children instead of gifted children. So we said, wait a minute, that's not what giftedness is to us. And we spent a whole weekend together in a marathon discussion and came up with the concept of giftedness as asynchronous development. Now, most people sort of have a, a bird's eye view of it or the reader's digest version, and they see it as simply uneven development. Well, asynchrony does mean uneven development, but it's much more than that. It is cognitively being advanced, but your hands and feet being at the same age as other kids who are your chronological peers. But in addition to that, it's a greater awareness. It's a greater sensitivity. It's a greater complexity. It's a, uh, a whole group of heightened overexcitabilities. Mm -hmm. And it increases with IQ. So the higher your IQ, the bigger the gap is between how you think and how your hands work, your ability to handwrite, for example. Right. That doesn't keep up with what, mentally what you can think about. So the, the last sentence of the definition of giftedness as asynchronous development is that it requires modifications in parenting, teaching, and counseling in order for gifted children to have optimal development. So it's the only definition that includes parents, teachers, and counselors right in the definition. Yeah, and that's, you know, and that's, that's such a key point, right? Because I do feel like often um, the parenting piece is not very well understood. <laughs> a no. lot of times when you say you have a gifted kid, people think you're bragging. Right. Or, um, you know, I mean, I, I remember when I first found out my daughter was gifted and I told a couple moms and I learned very quickly that you don't talk about your kid being gifted. Right. That's like saying how much money you have in the bank. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. Right. And it, and it is um, and it's and it's a very it's a very isolating experience as a parent a lot of times. Right. So but it also is for our for our children and particularly I feel like it is for girls. And I'm certainly not saying boys don't experience this as well. But because because girls have a tendency uh, and are kind of trained socially to be good girls, I feel like they learn how to fit in a little bit differently and a little bit more quickly than boys do. <laughs> is oh, that, absolutely. yeah, I mean, is that your experience? Like, you know, I, I really, I mean, obviously the, the mission of this, of this podcast is to really help the girls be seen, get, get earlier and more accurate diagnoses so that they can get the support they need so that they can be celebrated for the individuals who they are and for their strengths and their challenges and the whole, the whole person. But why, why do you think it is that it's, it's so it's, well, first of all, do you agree that it, that it's hard for girls to, to be identified? And if so, why, why do you think that is? Girls are chameleons. 
So I want to go back to a previous question because it's related to what you're asking me. Yeah. And that is, what have I seen as a big difference? And you talked about the social isolation. Mm -hmm. What I've seen over my career is that internet has allowed parents of the gifted to be less isolated than they were when I first started. 100%. (laughs) There are people they can talk to. And I am personally thrilled that you're doing this series of podcasts about exceptional girls. I am so in your camp about the importance of finding gifted girls, finding twice exceptional girls, finding girls who are such so good at hiding that they, and they have strong affiliative needs. So I believe that girls show giftedness differently. And I think girls show ADHD differently. And I think girls show spectrum issues differently. They may even show dyslexia differently. But I I know that for sure, the boys are the ones that the parents worry about, even today, even with internet, even with all of the information that you're providing in your series. In every center around the world that tests for giftedness, Two-thirds to three-quarters of the children brought in for assessment are male. Despite all of the knowledge people have, they see it in their boys, they miss it in their girls. My favorite story is this, this completely, this is a true story. The parents brought in their son and their daughter for testing. And they told us that the daughter was, and this is the real word, the daughter was a decoy, a decoy, because they didn't want their son to suspect that they were bringing him in because they were worried about whether he had some problems. The, The decoy had a 170 IQ. Really? The decoy. Wow. Parents are oblivious of giftedness in girls. And I think the main reason they overlook it is they're oblivious and giftedness in themselves. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I 100% believe this. If you believe that giftedness is eminence in adult life, right? if you believe that giftedness is who has the most patents, who has the best name recognition, Who has done something in adult life that merits everybody going, ooh, and you're not going to see a gifted mom. Who ever heard of a gifted mama? Yeah, I can't tell you how many, how many parents, well, a couple things in what you said. One, you know, I I had, I was concerned about starting a podcast specifically for girls because I wasn't sure the audience existed for it. Because to your point, 80% of people are talking about boys, if not more, right? So I'm like, okay, where are all the, where are all the moms of girls, right? Because I know we're here, (laughs) but where are we? Our research has shown that despite the bias and referral over a 42 year period, which has not improved one iota in 42 years, two thirds of our sample are male, one third is female. 
But in the highest IQ ranges, the very highest possible IQ ranges, 50%, despite the referrals, 50% are female. We found over 100 girls who are above 180 IQ. Wow. Well, let's, let's talk about IQ for a second. IQ is very important when we're talking about girls because IQ tests prove the existence of gifted girls. When eminence was used as the criterion to determine who was gifted, and it's still being used in academia today, but when it was you know, the only way, because there weren't any IQ tests, all the eminent people were male. Right. And so there was no way to find eminent females. There weren't any eminent females. Right. I mean, how could there be historically? Because it was not right. <laughs> and even now, it, over 90% of the eminent are male. Right. So when we use that as our picture of what is giftedness, then we don't see girls. But if you go back to the beginning of the IQ test, that's when it gets interesting because William Stern in Germany found that the kids he tested with the highest IQs were girls. And Lita Hollingworth found that. And Lewis Terman found that. And then at Gifted Development Center, we're seeing that. We're, we had, for a long time, the highest IQ score that we had found was on a girl. For, for listeners who may be bristling at the IQ testing, Oh, that's because they have been brainwashed by the patriarchy. The patriarchy believes that IQ tests are evil because they don't predict who's going to be famous. This idea of eminence was very, that, that's one of the big takeaways from your book for me, right? Was, yes, that's kind of the lens, you know, by which we were, yeah, that's how we were filtering, right? Well, you know, if you hadn't achieved, if you weren't an Elon Musk, you know, then, well, you weren't, exactly. you weren't gifted, right? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, to your point, most, I, would, I shouldn't say most, I don't know, but my sense is, I, I was gifted and I feel like I, like I have not performed to my potential. I would imagine a lot of, that happens with a lot of adults who are gifted, yes? But it's not about performance. Exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> That's part of the That's problem. The problem. <laughs> but look at what you're doing. You have the intensity. Right. You have the awareness. You have the kindness. You have a sense of social purpose. You are putting your giftedness, your abstract reasoning to work for the social good. That's not going to make a name for yourself, but that is how women use their giftedness. They use it for the social good, not for self-aggrandizement. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and to your point, you know, there uh, about something, you know, and another thing you said that, that part of the bias is in the parents themselves, that they don't, they don't bring their girls in to be assessed. Right. right. And how, and I can't tell you how many moms you know, who I bump into in this, in this community who talk about how gifted their kids are, but they're neurotypical. Well, not me. Right, right, I'm not, right. I'm not, that's my kid. I want a dollar for every mom who said to me, he gets it from his father. <laughs> yes. Right. But yet the heritability on these is, is proven. Is it not? Oh, I mean, oh yeah. Right. Oh, 
And I feel like once you see it in your child, at least this was my experience, you know, it helped connect some dots for me. I saw it, I started to see it, you know, like, like attracts like, right? I mean, so not instead just of looking at it through performance, if you looked at it in a different way, mm-hmm. if you said that giftedness is moral awareness. Yeah. If you said giftedness is empathy. Mm-hmm. If you said giftedness is compassion. Mm-hmm. If you said giftedness is um, perfectionism. If you said these things were gifted, then all of a sudden the women are, oh yeah, oh, I'm empathic. I'm compassionate. I am morally aware. I get morally indignant when I see people, you know, wasting and, and uh, adding to the trash. Yeah. But yeah. these are the, that's the one of the ways that girls get lost and women get lost is we are using a patriarchal, left hemispheric, bureaucratic definition of what giftedness is supposed to look like. If you were living up to your potential, you'd have gone in, you'd be a CEO and be famous and making a six-figure salary right now. What's the matter with you? There's a lot in there that, that I, that is, I mean, it's really, it's really true. Um, when you, I mean, and it, and it's, it's so obvious, you know, when you hear someone say it, sometimes, you, you know, it's hearing the right thing at the right time. And for me, it was reading the right thing at the right time, but reading that in your book connected so many, so many dots for me around, you know, what I couldn't quite say quite as eloquent, eloquently as you just did, but yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about, um, about not just giftedness, but about choice exceptionality yeah. and, so in, in my world, that, that's kind of our experience of, of giftedness is not just, not just having the giftedness piece, but also having, you know, a learning difference or, you know, in my daughter's case, she, she also, she has ADHD and she's, she also is on this, the autism spectrum, right? So I imagine you also, you know, interact with a lot of uh, twice exceptional kids in your world. The, and vast, you the vast majority yeah, I mean, I, I've heard it. I, I think, um, are you familiar with Julie Skolnick? Of, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, she obviously, were, you know, has, has a focus in the, in the twice exceptional world as well. And I've heard her say that she suspects that all kids are probably, who are gifted are probably <laughs> twice exceptional. And I've, I've often kind of wondered that myself. Do you think that's true or? I, I would not say that, no. Asynchrony is discrepancies between strengths and weaknesses. It's uneven development. And we expect to see that in the entire gifted population, but that doesn't mean the entire gifted population is twice exceptional. It depends on what is the degree of that discrepancy. I define it as three standard deviations of subtest scores or two standard deviations of composite scores on an IQ test. So if your child has had an IQ test, if you see that the gifted part, it's usually verbal composite, uh, the verbal comprehension index is 130, but the processing speed index is 100. That's, there's a 15 point standard deviation and that's two standard deviation discrepancy that's twice exceptional. Yep. On a subtest level, if your child got 
a 19 in similarities, but a 10 in coding. Similarities measures verbal abstract reasoning and it correlates with the full scale IQ and with the child's actual intelligence. So 19 is the highest possible score. Well, it's not anymore with extended norms, but it used to be the highest possible score. So you've got a 19 and you've got a 10. Coding is eye-hand coordination. That's a, the, every three points is a standard deviation. So that's a three standard deviation discrepancy. In school, that's gonna be looked at as average. Mm -hmm. At gifted development center, that's gonna be looked at as twice exceptional. The fact that it's average is irrelevant. Well, isn't it also, I mean, I've always been a little confounded by how you can give someone a full scale IQ score when they have those kind of discrepancies do you know what I mean? How can you bring it to one? How do you bring it to one number then? Well, but the number the number is not interpretable when there is a 23 point discrepancy among those composite scores. Whenever, and I hope everybody listening will look, if you've had IQ testing, look at your child's composite scores and see if there's a 23 point discrepancy. If you see anything that's 23 points or higher, mm -hmm. then that full scale IQ score is rendered uninterpretable. And we're writing an article right now, a whole group of us who, who test gifted kids about how we need to get rid of the full scale IQ score. It has no meaning at all for twice exceptional children. And the NAGC, the National Association for Gifted Children came out with a position statement for the WISC-4 and a position statement for the WISC-5 in which we say when there's a large discrepancy of 23 points or greater, then you take their highest composite score as the indicator of their actual intelligence. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because just looking at, you know, my daughter took, she was assessed with the, with the WISC-4 and she was assessed with the WISC-5 a couple times. And I remember her first WISC-4, there was a, there was the, the full-scale IQ and then there was a general abilities index, right. right? And that number seemed a lot more accurate to me, right? Even though it was, it's also kind of a thing that seemed to get thrown out in, in the, the later ones that I saw. We well, never got that number. A, there's a reason for that. Yeah. And that I can that I can explain. Yeah, uh, we were uh, strong proponents of the general ability index on the WIC, the WISC four because it was made up of six subtests that had high loadings on general intelligence. They measured verbal intelligence and nonverbal intelligence, and they left out working memory and processing speed. And because you had a robust index of six strong general intelligence loaded subtests, the GAI was great. But they changed the WISC-5 so much that the GAI was weakened. So I developed something on my own and uh, Bobby Gilman and I uh, we're sharing this with the test constructor, Susie Rayford at Pearson, and we recommended the expanded general ability index. 
And that's something your, your viewers need to know about or your listeners need to know about. Yeah. The expanded general ability index, I called the gifted index. Ah, interesting. And it's made up of four verbal subtests, two visual spatial subtests, and two mathematical reasoning subtests. And they're very uh, highly loaded on general intelligence. And in the uh, testing of gifted children that was done at Pearson, that they report in their technical manual, these were among their high, the highest scores attained by their gifted population of 65 kids. So here's the problem and why many of the people that'll be listening don't have all the information they need. These additional indexes, the first one is the most important. It came out in 2015, but the testers didn't read that technical report. It says, give all four verbal subtests. Oh. Two of them, two of those verbal subtests are supplementary tests, comprehension and information. Unless the tester gave those two, you can't get the Verbal Expanded Crystallized Index, the VECI. Uh, when we've done research on 390 kids from all over the country, from seven different sites, the highest score was on the Verbal Expanded Crystallized Index, the VECI, the four verbal subtests. So that requires the tester to give more than just the 10 basic subtests. They have to give two additional ones to get the BECI, information and comprehension, very important subtest for finding giftedness. But to do the EGAI, which is the expanded gift general ability index, they also have to give a third supplementary test, hmm. arithmetic, because you need arithmetic and figure weights. Figure weights is a core subtest, but you need arithmetic and figure weights to get your mathematical reasoning in there. So they have to give 13 subtests. Now there are some people who are only giving seven. You can get a full scale IQ score with just seven subtests. The vast majority of, of psychologists give 10, mm -hmm. but the, the, at the very minimum, they should be giving 12 because they need to give all four verbal subtests to find giftedness, especially gifted girls. You want to find gifted girls, give all four subtests. If your tester hasn't given those last two, then you're stuck with the VCI, which is only made up of two subtests. It's vocabulary and similarities. It's probably your your gifted daughter's highest score, that's her real ability level. Hmm. That's really good to know because, you know, I feel like just like with anything, right, we kind of need to be consumers and we need to, we need to ask the right questions. And I think that when it comes to these assessments, I, I know speaking personally, like you know, you're, you're kind of afraid to ask questions sometimes or you, you get results and honestly, you come away with way more questions than they answered. And I feel like that's where somebody like you comes in. Yes. Like you can, I, I heard you say in an interview that, you know, reading IQ scores was like reading tea leaves for you and you could, you know, really figure out what's going on in there.
I can tell from looking at, if parents just send me their scores without any identification, I'd like them to tell me at least if it's a male or a female and the age, but if they just sent me their scores, I can tell a great deal in a short amount of time with no additional information. I can tell, it does this child have a vision issue that needs to be addressed and evaluated by an optometrist? Does this child have a potential auditory issue that may need to be addressed by, we send them to Able Kids Foundation in Port Collins. They, they have this ear filter, the magic ear filter that synchronizes the timing of the two ears. I can look and tell if pretty much if there's an underestimate of abilities there. I can tell if that child is a visual spatial learner very often. I can tell if they've got mathematical talent. I, I, I can tell that just from the scores. I think that really is to me kind of a missing link for, for a lot of parents. Like I said, I've, I mean, my daughter's been assessed now three or four times and I always come away from it and I'm still not really learning anything. I just, I got a number, we got a number, right? But I still don't totally understand what that teaches me about her strengths and her challenges, you know, in a practical way. A comprehensive evaluation should, you should go come away with it saying, oh, now I understand my daughter. Now I know what her strengths are. Now I know what her weaknesses are. Now I know what my next steps are in helping her. Yeah. If you haven't gotten that, then that's really a, a tragic because that's what you should get from, a, from an evaluation. And maybe that's just my experience, but, but, but to be candid, yeah, that ha that's how I feel about it. And these, you know, these are, you invest a lot of time and money and energy into these and to come away feeling like, you know, you have more questions than answers is, is disheartening because, because you really want to, but I feel like that's where, that's where you come in. So do you actually administer the WISC-4 or do you just interpret the results? What all do you do at the center? I interpret. Mm -hmm. uh, we have wonderful testers. They're able to gain rapport with very uh, introverted, reticent kids. Uh, they're good with kids that are bouncing off the walls. They're good. They're, they're just a wonderful group of very, very skillful people who know more about giving IQ tests than I do. Right. And then Bobby Gilman, who's the associate director, or I, will... We do two persons in a post-test conference. You don't just talk to the person who did the testing. You get to speak with a senior member. And, and uh, Bobby's been with Gifted Development Center nearly 30 years. Yeah. So she has a great deal of experience. She's written three different books and uh on parent advocacy. She's a parent advocacy specialist. She's written a book for teachers on challenging highly gifted students in their classrooms. So she is very, very knowledgeable. And either Bobby or I are, are with the tester and we're writing what we call an optimal development plan for that child. Hmm. And we all, the parents, the tester and Bobby or I, are, are all putting our best ideas together. Does this child need a 504 plan? If so, what is the most important thing to go in that 504 plan? Okay. 
what are the kinds of um, groups that this child is qualified for? Does this child qualify for Davidson Young Scholars? Mm -hmm. Does this child qualify for PG Retreat? Does this child is, has a fantastic imagination and would love Druidon? So we know about uh, Camp Epsilon, which is for mathematically talented kids who have a 145 IQ and a 145 broad math score on the Woodcock Johnson. So we know about what's out there. What, what are the talent search programs about? What, what about the, that fabulous summer enrichment program in Greeley? You know, what about Camp UNASA for kids who have wonderful empathy? So we know we can say, okay, this would be perfect for your kid. Yeah. And in, in college, this is the kind of, your child should be taking lecture classes in the morning. All of that's in the report. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to get into IQ tests because over this weekend, I really got into your book and it kind of got me thinking all these questions about IQ tests because a lot of people think that's kind of the elitist way, but it's actually the equalizer. It, it's not elitist at all. Right. Uh, the, it was how gifted girls were found in the first place, because if they weren't going to be allowed to be famous, that was how we found out that girls were just as smart as boys. Right. Up until the IQ test, it was assumed that it was scientific fact that males were superior in intelligence to females and that you couldn't possibly give them the same IQ test. Or if you gave them the same IQ test, you would have to have the mean for girls much lower because boys are much smarter. Everybody right. knows that. Yeah, right. That was scientific fact mm -hmm. before IQ tests. It was through IQ tests that we found gifted girls and it is the best way to find gifted girls is to get an IQ test on them. Because when they hit the wall, when they run across a subject that they can't do well, then they say, I'm stupid. And if you don't, if you don't have an IQ test to say, no, you're not, I have the proof that you're not, then they, they judge their intelligence on circumstantial evidence that they had to work hard. In because a I feel like girls subject. really suffer from imposter syndrome way more than boys do, right? Oh, it, it, it started with a study of gifted females. Pauline Klan studied gifted females who were high achievers. So imposter syndrome is a female perspective yeah. and it's girls and women who feel like imposters. Right. It's part of the gender differences. I'll talk about that in Upside Down Brilliance too. Yeah, about why, why women, especially mathematically talented or visual spatial women, why they feel like imposters. Mm -hmm. So there is one thing I want to make sure that I ask. When I think about exceptionalities as a whole, and that includes both great strengths or great challenges, all of the things, and getting an accurate diagnosis. You know, I, I always visualize it like this Venn diagram, but you know, it's sort of like a zinnia with like many, <laughs> many puddles to it. It's not just a simple okay. one, right? And so I find it so hard to kind of differentiate, like what's the ADHD part and what's the gifted part and what's the autism part? Is 
Is that hard for everybody to decipher or is it easy for you to actually separate out the bits and pieces or is it it just part of the whole? That's my gift. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people can't fathom it because giftedness is very complex Mm -hmm. and a child can have an 85 IQ score and still be gifted. Right. And they can't even imagine how that could be possible. Mm -hmm. But it is possible and I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. So giftedness is very complex. The combination of giftedness with all these different possible weaknesses like visual, Mm -hmm. auditory, sensory, concentration, social connection, that itself is quadruples the complexity. Then you add girls to the mix the chameleons, the hidden, the accommodated, the people who have learned how to give other people what they want. Mm-hmm. And girls learn that by five years old. Yep. Who yep. do you want me to be today? You take gender into the picture and you, you've just made this an almost insurmountable task. And one of the reasons why I have this ability to separate it out is that I have a degree in special education. So I know about what an auditory processing weakness looks like and what does a visual processing weakness looks like? What does a sensory processing weakness look like? What, what, how do you interpret it when these scores are this divergent? And what additional evaluations are needed to delve further into what's happening with this child. For a girl, for instance, who is showing some symptoms of spectrum issues, I often send them for occupational therapy before I send them for any kind of an, uh, an evaluation for autism. For somebody who has ADHD, I send them for a central auditory processing battery before I send them to an ADHD specialist, because I know that there's a tremendous overlap in girls in particular between inattentive ADHD and central auditory processing disorder. And you want to rule one out before you rule the other one in. You know, that raises a really interesting question. I mean, I feel like we keep coming up with more and more diagnoses. I just kind of wonder if maybe if there was a sort of going back to basics and really understanding the the interrelationship, like the things you're talking about, like with an auditory processing issue and how, you know, you can suss that out in the right subtests and different things like that. Like maybe if we just better understood like you do, how to interpret. I'm trained to understand modalities. Mm -hmm. And so modalities are the basics for me. Mm -hmm. They're not the building blocks for someone who's never studied auditory, visual, or sensory systems. Right. In fact, there's an awful lot of psychologists who say there is no such thing as central auditory processing disorder. Right. Or they say oh, well, we're not going to put sensory processing disorder in the DSM because we don't have enough evidence yet. We have tons of evidence, but they won't accept it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, 
one of the one of the things I read in your book that that hit me right here. It was one of those those uh, reminders of why I knew I needed to do this podcast. I was really called to it. It wasn't something I decided. It it picked me right to do it. And you had you had written that um, there are as many girls as boys in the highest IQ ranges, but girls are chameleons. Early identification is critical before they vanish in middle school. And that really, that just really hit me because I feel like that's what happens, right? The girls just kind of, they just kind of slip away. They just get quiet and they fly under the radar and, you know, they, <laughs> we, and then we lose, if we you lose them. try to put together a kindergarten program, you will have no trouble finding equal numbers of girls. Mm-hmm. You put together a middle school program, you will have trouble finding an equal number of girls. Yeah. Yeah. So. We, we, know, we know that early identification has a ton of benefits because you can start to, you know, support the right things, challenge the right things, really set a, a girl or any child for that matter on the right path. What are the risks and costs of not doing that to the individual? You, you have this girl who grows up to feel odd, who knows that she's different. She doesn't know why. Mm-hmm. But she suspects that she's broken. Yeah, broken. That there's something wrong with me. I don't, I don't fit in. I can't find anybody who really gets who I am. And that means there's something wrong with me. That's the risk. Yeah, and I think sometimes you become this serial achiever, right? Because every time you achieve something, you're like, you're afraid somebody's going to find out that it's all just luck or it's all just a hoax or I'm an imposter, right? So you, you keep having to like up the ante for yourself. <laughs> and so you're kind of perpetually unfulfilled because you're seeking something because you have this fear of being found out as not really being as capable. Well, that I'm glad you brought up luck because when you ask boys to what they attribute their success, they're going to say, I'm smart. If you ask girls, they very often will say, oh, it's just good luck. Mm-hmm. They think that their successes are, are based on luck, not on, on being smart. And here's the, here's the real clincher. A lot of women that I've worked with, because I work with women as well as girls, a lot of women have told me they're not smart they had to work hard. <laughs> right. right. So if you're smart, you don't have to work hard. And so there was a study by Fenema that I talk about in Counseling the Gifted and Talented. She asked math teachers, middle school math teachers, to what do you attribute the success of your smartest students? And she would use male students. And that teachers would say, well, they're smart. And then she'd say, to what do you attribute the success of your best female students? They worked hard. Wow. (laughs) So the teaching profession is, is as inundated with the messages that boys are smart and girls work hard. So if you work hard, it means you're not smart. Working hard is is not in place of smart. Rachmaninoff worked really hard. Marie Curie worked really, really hard. 
Yeah, I think anybody who masters their craft has to work at it. Of course, but it doesn't mean you're not smart if you have to work hard. I want to talk a little bit about about your work with, with women as well as girls, because this kind of speaks to why I'm so passionate about this. And it's because if we don't get girls the right identifications and supports when they're young, then, you know, when they're adults, now now it's compounded and they're even harder to find and even harder to help. Uh, when I'm working with gifted women, I will often do a series of exercises that will help them to understand the programming that they've had and how the messages that they give themselves are inaccurate. I usually start out by writing up on a whiteboard or something, I'm not gifted because, and then they give me all their excuses and all the reasons, I'm not gifted because my brother's the gifted one. Oh, that's a good reason to keep you out of a gifted program because your brother was the gifted one. Right. I'm not gifted because I work hard. I'm not gifted because I have problems with math. I'm not gifted because it takes me a long time to read. I'm not gifted, and they they give they pour out all of these misperceptions they have about what giftedness is. And then I say, now pretend that you're an admissions committee to a gifted program. Would any of these reasons be sufficient evidence that the person is not gifted? That you would definitely for sure keep them out of a gifted program. Well, if they're not good at math, for for sure I'm not putting them in the gifted program. You know, and, and then they can see easily that nothing that they tell themselves it negates their giftedness. Nothing. Right. So if people suspect that their that their daughters might be gifted, or maybe they don't know what to look for, what, what are some early indicators? Girls tend to be more verbal than boys. And so that's been overlooked. The early verbal ability is absolutely an indicator of giftedness. Girls tend to read earlier than boys. So we discount that and teachers say, oh, by third grade, they'll all catch up. Nonsense. Right. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, what you it start, when you have a girl who is reading early, pay attention. When you have a girl who is asking you profound questions, pay attention. When you're asking, when you're, looking at a a daughter who is feeling what other people are feeling, pay attention. All of those things are giftedness. If you have a daughter who notices everything, doesn't miss a detail, when you change where you put a, a pot of flowers, oh, you put the flowers here today, pay attention. Keen observation. These are very important things, and they, they, we see them more in gifted girls. Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, I saw those things in my daughter, actually, so it makes sense. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to ask one last question, and that is, what's the single most important thing, you know, that you think parents should know if, if they are raising an exceptional girl, How, what, what's the most important thing they need to know to really help her feel seen and supported and celebrated? I 
always use the word respect. I think it's, it's a one word answer to that question. I think you have to respect your children as individuals, your teachers, people who've chosen to come into you and to be with you for the rest of your life. And so you have to give them the kind of respect when they're children that you want them to give you when the tables are turned and they're responsible for your care. Because nine times out of 10, it's gonna be your daughters who take care of you when you're old. Not your sons, it's gonna be your daughters. And you want, when you're 90 years old, you want your daughters to respect you enough to ask you, mom, what do you want? What would work for you? And if you want that, give that when they're three and four and five. Give them a lifespan sense of your respect for them and they will respect you. Yeah, I love that. That's just fantastic parenting advice all the way around. I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time and with your knowledge. And I know that it's going to be of tremendous value to our listeners. So many thanks. And uh, really, from the bottom of my heart, I've, I've followed your work for a long time. And it's been my pleasure to talk with you. Okay, take care, Julie. It was fun for me too. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Exceptional Girls podcast. If you liked today's episode, it would mean the world to me if you'd subscribe, leave a rating and review, and recommend it to just one other person who you think would benefit from listening. Even a small act of support helps the podcast reach more people, which in turn helps increase awareness and understanding of exceptionality in girls. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please share them. You can connect with me, your host, Julie Withrow, through our website at exceptionalgirlspodcast.com forward slash contact. And that's a wrap. Ciao for now.